turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are looking at verses 12 through 19, a series that I've been teaching on in this book on the importance of the bodily resurrection and all of its implications. Um, How about we pray and then read the word of the Lord, verses 12 through 19. Father, it is truly amazing grace. And Father, uh, I pray that we who are called by your name would live in a state of being overwhelmed by your grace. Father, in all of the distractions of this life, in all the things of this life, Father, overwhelm us. Show us you. And then, Father, in humility, may we walk in the peace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. Father, give us ears to hear this text this day. Give us eyes to see the glory, the majesty, the importance of this text. And Father, as we drink deep of your word, may we be so full, so full, we may walk worthy of our calling. To your praise, to your glory, Christ's name, amen. Beginning at verse 12, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Though Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished And if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. This is really an amazing text if you're you're really honest with the scriptures and you watch what the word of God does, especially when it lays out here. Because he's come through a, a, a church, basically the first six chapters, he is just assaulting their behaviors. He doesn't even deal with what they had asked him until chapter 7. And I mean, the church basically has, the the only way I can describe it is, is that the culture around the church in Corinth had infected the church. And, And they had just gotten into this place where grace and mercy and love is all of this. And, 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 and you can just do anything because Jesus loves you. And that's why you have chapter 13. You know, a lot of people will read that at their weddings. And the truth of that text is chapter 13, quote unquote, the love chapter, is the conclusion of what spiritual gifts are. 12, 13, and 14 deal with spiritual gifts. And he says the problem with exercising your gift or whatever it is you're doing as a congregation, you're not doing in love. And what you see in the perversion of the gifts today and the counterfeiting of the gifts today is just that. People are doing what strikes them. 
Then he moves into chapter 15, and in chapter 15, he says, I want you to, I need to ask you, are you saved? Because if the world has a greater influence on you than Christ, are you saved? He makes a statement. I make known to you, brother, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach. Unless you did what? Okay, the word vain there literally means it's empty. It's worthless. It has nothing in it. Okay, um, we looked at Ezekiel this morning in Sunday school and we seen that the nation of Israel was definitely doing everything God told them to do. To a point, they were kind of worshiping their own way. I mean, there was parts of the law that they adhered to. Listen, you and I sit in this room today and there are parts of the law that you will adhere to. Thou shalt not murder. Ah, make a note. I probably shouldn't do that. All right. Now, are you afraid of God or are you afraid of the cops? Thou shalt not steal. Let me ask you a question. How are you doing with coveting? Because see, I can covet and you never know it. And see, that's the kind of stuff that you see in the church today. Uh, on When I was traveling, I shared with you this last week. I want you to think about this. Because I've been talking to pastors, I talked to numerous pastors uh, when I was traveling back east, and they all said the same thing. It was really kind of pathetic. What's being preached from the pulpits? Now, please, I guess I need to be a qualifier here. The men that I spoke to were preachers of the Word of God, not entertainers, not crowd gatherers. These were men of God doing what they believe is their calling in the power of God. So, okay, now I've got that caveat in there. But they said that what we are preaching, all of the people in our congregations are saying amen to, but they're not living it. Their faith is empty. And I said, well, it doesn't matter. It's that way in all religions right now. Is you can teach something, they all say Amen. I'll give you a good for instance. We all know the Honorable Senator Ted Kennedy, correct? Amen? Okay, we know him. And he's suffering. And I've been exposed to the Kennedy family for a long time. Not personally, but I mean, I was around when John was around. Anyway, hardcore Catholic. That believes in pro-choice. Does the Pope believe in pro-choice? No. So how can you be a hardcore Catholic and be pro-choice? So what I'm trying to get at is, is that the phenomenon of an empty faith is, is pretty much across the board. And I can even show it to you in the nation of Israel throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament. All right. So when you hear this message, there's a bunch of you are going to say, Amen. But then I'm going to ask you this question. Do you live a life that is in the power of a resurrected Christ? Because if he can raise the dead, exactly what is your problem that he can't handle? Where is your 
faith. Where's your faith? It's an interesting concept, I think. And it fits right in here where we're at. Basically, what you have are two implications here. The theological consequences and the personal consequences. He gives the first 11 verses the proof of the resurrection. I got eyewitnesses. Not only do I have eyewitnesses of the resurrection, I have enemies of Christ who are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. I even have his brother, his half-brother. Was I was very much a skeptic. I lived with him. And you're telling me you're a son of God? I don't think so. And yet James says that he's seen the resurrection. And, and it's funny how when the resurrected Christ shows up, it changes people. And it is a radical transformation. And I don't understand in the church today why the church does not have a radical transformation. He is still alive. He is still interceding. And you are part of the resurrection. I was reading this wonderful article, and I'll share it with you in weeks to come, that we are living between two Easter's. And I was like, what? We're going to get a lot of chocolate. No, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of you. You have a bodily resurrection is coming that will match the resurrected spirit you now possess. If you walk by faith. If not, then he makes the statement three times. Your faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You know what that means? It's useless. Theological consequences that if if there is no resurrection, guess what? Christ didn't rise. Okay? If Christ did not get out of the tomb, there is no gospel. There is no good news. Death won. Sin won. If Christ didn't rise and there is no gospel, then faith is useless. I don't care what your faith is. It's useless. It accomplishes nothing. It is of no value. And the fourth implication in the theological side is that the apostles are liars. Okay? As for us, the personal consequences. Sin's power is unbroken. Sin's power is unbroken. A person who has the Holy Spirit living in him or her has the ability to overcome which sins? All. And you know what you don't need? Anything else. You don't need a philosophy. You don't need a mantra. You don't need a chant. You don't need a group. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, which is the second person of the Trinity or third person of the Trinity, wherever you want to place him. And he has the ability to overcome which sins? Oh, even that one that we all struggle with, that we can all hide well, coveting. Because, you know, I can just sit there, covet, 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 and nobody, they don't even know I'm doing it. Okay? So sin's power is unbroken. That means that when they murdered Jesus Christ, guess what? Sin won. If there is no resurrection of Christ. If, and the second thing to you, and a personal consequence, is that your preaching that you have set under my <laughs> tormenting of your souls is useless. It's in vain. You are wasting your time. Whatever I got to say is empty. And if the preaching is in vain, then that means my faith is in vain. I mean, sin one. Faith can't deal with sin. A faith that can't deal with sin can't help. 
And if that's true, then the penalty is not paid. And if that's true, then there is no one interceding on your behalf at the right hand of God the Father this day. Which means you get to pay it. You get to pay it. And then he makes this statement. He says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And it literally means they've, they've closed their eyes full of this hope and this soul love for Jesus Christ. With this hope, this longing to see Jesus Christ. Never seeing him. They perished. Now listen, however you slice it, even to just that point, he has a very crushing argument. I mean, that is tough to argue against. And yet I watch people in the church who will believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and yet live completely contrary to it. And they don't ever take the word as the word of God. I said in a seminary class... I audited a class. It was Old Testament in Israel and history. It's really phenomenal. Other than covering way too much information. Um, well, think about it. 4,000 years, and we did it in a semester. Okay? I know it's twice a week, but hey. Okay? But I said, listen to all these kids that were in there, and they're all going into, quote-unquote, ministry. And you can hear the same thing over and over again. This man was a phenomenal professor. Phenomenal. Absolutely mind-boggling. And I could listen to all these. And this is, there's, there's probably 200 people in this class. And all they were worried about was what is on the test. Okay. What will you be grading on the test? And when do I have my papers done? Not a one of them that I talked to had the awe to think I am hearing the mind of God expounded before my very soul. That scared me. If these are the quote unquote spiritual leaders who are coming next, uh oh. Verse 19. He closes and he gives a a summary here. And he uses a phrase that is amazing. Now, I'm going to have to get into the Greek construction, but I'll show you how it works. Verse 19 says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Okay, only comes at the end of the clause. Okay. Um, What it means is, if, let, me, let me give you my, my vernacular. Oh, this is going to be awful, isn't it? Right. We're going to need, we, we put all of our eggs in one basket. Okay? That's what it's... When you put only at the end of the clause, what you're saying is, I have only put everything in this one thing. Okay? That's it. And if it isn't true, what all we've hoped on Christ, he says, you know what? We're a pitiful bunch. We're a pitiful bunch. And I, and I think about Paul making this statement here. This is one of the early letters of the New Testament. And he says, can you believe what we've been through? And then I look at it and say, okay, for 2,000 years, we are pretty dumb. 
if there is no resurrection. Because you know what? I hate to put it this way, and I'm going to be very frank about it. I have put all my eggs in one basket. Okay? I have not put on... I've known people in the past who have a little rabbit's foot, uh, maybe a crucifix, and a, a little Star David, uh, maybe a little one of them little horn things, and maybe, you know, whatever they want to do. And, you know, and I remember talking to this one guy, and he says, I'm just trying to cover all my bases. Okay? No! There is one way to God. One. And if in this life we have put all of our hope in Christ, that's it. Nothing else. Let me tell you something. I want to give you a little thing. I want you to think about this. This is formulated over months in my feeble little mind. I want you to think about this. I get into trouble for this all the time. True Christians. Okay, and just, gosh. Anyway. Cause, it doesn't cause me grief. It causes everybody else grief. I want you to think about this. Every true Christian knows when you became a Christian that you had nothing else going. Does that make sense? I don't have anything else. I don't have anything else. I don't have a spouse. I don't have children. I don't have a job. I don't have a career. I don't have a retirement. How are you doing with that? Because he says here, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, then he's basically saying, I have staked all my life, all of my passions, all of my desires, everything in this world I have canned for Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Shouldn't that be evident? I would think that you would be able to see it. So every Christian knows you became a Christian when you got nothing else going. And usually, in most cases, not in all, but in most cases I've run into, he basically strips you of everything and there you stand and you got nothing. Okay? Because one of the things that I have learned about God is that He wants your undivided attention. This comes to that that we hate to hear. There is a commitment totally to His Lordship. Anything short of that is vain faith. Vain faith. You've got nothing else. You've got Christ. You've got Christ the one and only. That's all you got. That's it. I got nothing else. I got nothing else to give you. I got nothing else to offer you. I've got Christ. Every Christian, true Christian, has Christ only. And our hope is where? It ain't the stock market. It ain't the Democrats. It ain't the Republicans or the independents. It ain't in this country. It ain't in the finances. It ain't in your job, what you drive or what you wear. My hope is Christ and Christ alone. Period. For everything. Did you ever think about Job? We talk about Job. We thought, oh, you talk about a guy had a bad week. Right? But you know one of, the, one of the amazing things toward the end of the book? Though you slay me, I will bless the Lord. And you know what that means? I will worship you. I will worship you. 
Paul's argument on the bodily resurrection of Christ here is if Christ doesn't work, I don't have anything else to fall back on. There isn't anything else. And yet, look at the church today, look at your average Christian and tell me that. Tell me you can see that in your average Christian. Take any, any, any Christian. You can't... Well, I've seen people that when you're around them, within five minutes of a casual conversation, they are speaking of Christ. No, they're not saying, you know, if you don't believe like I do, you're going to hell. They're talking about what Christ is doing, what Christ has done. Do you know what Christ is going to be like? Do you know what to say in coming? Can you... And it goes down the line, down the line. And that has impacted my life tremendously. Because there's a lot of times that there's nothing but hot air out there. People talk about all kinds of stuff for no apparent reason. Now listen, I am not against football and things like that. That's not what I'm saying. I have one horse. This is it. I got one basket. This is it. I got one Christ. How about you? How about you? His argument is, if it isn't in Jesus, we're a pitiful bunch. Because we didn't diversify. We are, if the dead don't rise, Christ didn't rise. Our Savior is dead. Think about it. He who said he could save you died. That's pretty serious stuff. We are to be pitied. When I think about all of the people from the time of the crucifixion, for all of the people who have fought temptation, who have struggled against sin, they're praying to nobody. All the Bible studies, all the bearing of your cross, all the suffering reproach, all the little notebook things that I fill out on little papers. Poor trees died for nothing. What a bunch of pitiful people. All those people who forsook the world, its pleasures, its rewards, its fulfillment, they forsook it for Christ. And he's dead. Do you see the importance of the resurrection? Have you read 20? Christ has been raised from the dead. I would have put a caveat in there. And don't make me come down there. He has risen. He is alive. He did rise. It is all true. The resurrection is true. Do you understand what I'm saying? A dead body got up from the grave. A dead body. I'm talking. He may be smelling now. It got up. I've seen dead people. I've watched people die. You know what? Never seen any of them get up. But I have been to his tomb. And he ain't there. He ain't there. Okay, so now let me give you a great big old bow. Are you ready? I'm going to summarize 12 through 19. Okay, in some truths. 
Because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, it proves truth is stronger than a lie. Okay? What? Because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, it proves that truth is stronger than a lie. Jesus said, I am the truth. Okay? His enemies wanted what? Lies. It's like when your wife gets up and she puts on, whoa, where'd you get that at? Clothes. And she stands there and looks at you and says, how do I look? I always smile and say, fifth amendment. (laughs) I'll let you ponder that one. Okay. The world wants lies. So they killed the truth. He says, I am the truth. You read it today in the text that he read out of John. And they killed the truth. And if the truth stayed dead, then guess what? The lie won. But the truth didn't stay dead. The resurrection is the final guarantee of the indestructibility of truth. Okay? Truth came out of the grave. Second thing. The resurrection of Christ Jesus proves that good is stronger than evil. The forces that crucified Christ... That evil that came together in Jerusalem by their father, the devil, tried their best to destroy good. And if there's no resurrection, then evil won. The very moral principle of the universe, the holy nature of God, is in peril. If Christ did not rise. But if Jesus comes out of the grave, guess what? Do you know what to say? Evil is destroyed. Okay. Resurrection then is the final guarantee that good is indestructible. That evil will be destroyed and dealt with. And it is. Okay. Third thing. The resurrection of Christ Jesus proves that love is more powerful, stronger than hate. Jesus came into this world, love of God incarnate, into a world of what? Hate. This isn't just dislike, people. Look around me. You don't have... Just look around. The world, he appeared, the love of God incarnate appeared in a world that hates so much, they killed love. And if he stayed dead, hate won, love lost. But the resurrection of Christ Jesus is the triumph of love over hate. Love conquers hate. 
By the way, did you know that every time? Just footnote. Fourth thing. Life is stronger than death. The resurrection of Christ Jesus proves that life is stronger than death. Death could not hold him in the ground. It brings me up a story. Some of you may have read some of Barclay's, William Barclay's stuff. Uh, Good stuff. Uh, But he was talking about a church in London. This was during World War II. And times were tough in London during World War II. Um, You just didn't know when the sky would open up and bombs would fall on you. Um, And this church in London was going to have a harvest celebration. They had brought in a lot of fruit and and, and the produce to carry them through the winter. Uh, And not knowing, you know, how the war war was going to turn and, you know, we're going to start having to speak German or whatever. And they had a harvest celebration. And they had come in and they had packed up the halls of this church with extra produce for the needy families in the church that maybe didn't have a garden or anything like that. And what they did is they took a sheave of corn and they set it on the communion table. Okay, kind of like these things. Okay, just a decoration. Because they were preparing to celebrate the tremendous blessings, the the thankfulness of their hearts for the provisions of God. These people were under stress. I mean, you see about the bombings in, in London and all the rest of it. The problem was they never met. The Saturday night before their celebration, there was an air raid. And the bombs fell on that church and literally blew it to bits. Um, According to Barclay's dissertation on this, there was nothing more than a foot and a high, foot and a half high pile of rubble. That's how elderly destructive the bombing of that air raid was. They never celebrated their harvest. But months passed, you know. And in the middle of the pile of rubble grew these green shoots as spring came. But then as summer came and it started getting more, it turned into a patch of corn in the middle of all the rubble. Markley said, not, quote, not even the bombs and destructions could kill the life that was in those seeds. Seeds just laying on a table. So it is with the life, the life that conquers death, unquote. Okay? He conquered death. Because Jesus Christ conquered death, verse 20, Christ has raised from the dead. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more time and I'm closing with prayer. Have you got all your eggs in one basket? Or have you diversified? I watch people who try to live good lives. They try hard. And you know, sometimes they are semi-successful. But you can only conquer sin through the resurrected Christ Jesus. And the only way you come to the resurrected Christ Jesus is putting all of your eggs in one basket. One basket. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the resurrection. Father, thank you for my brother Paul who labored so 
feverishly in the time that you graced him that we this day stand as fruit of that man. Father, help us. Help us to see, help us to hear, help us to draw deep of the amazement of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our souls and that someday we'll be joined with a resurrected body, never to ever struggle again. Father, that is our hope. That is our message. Father, I beg you, burn that into the souls of these hearers. Put it in our hearts in a way that we walk in the power of your resurrection, to your glory, to your praise. In Christ's name, amen.